At this point, every information portal is saturated with mindfulness content. But this show is a unique, unusual, curious take on mindfulness. Some of what you hear will be completely new to you. Let's dive in and take a look at the nature of the aware mind. I invite you to deepen your awareness so that you may be liberated and inspired. We are here with Sarah Vallely, mindfulness teacher, coach, and author. Sarah has been teaching meditation and mindfulness for the past two decades, training and certifying others to teach mindfulness. Sarah is the author of four books. Her latest book is titled Tame, Soothe, Dwell, The 55 Teachings of TSD Mindfulness. On today's episode, we talked about the work of Esther Perel, a well-known psychotherapist and her work on relationships. Within the episode, we discuss boundaries, assumptions, and how to improve your relationship with mindfulness. I'm Jacob Derosset. We are here with Sarah Vallely. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing great, Jacob. Thank you. Did you know that science shows that healthier relationships are linked to higher immune function, lower risk for heart disease, a lower risk for depression, and longer life expectancy? Did you Did you know about this? Yeah, there's this thing in my industry called the five factors of health. Relationships, and this is in no particular order, relationships, sleep, nutrition, exercise and mindset. So mindset would be mindfulness, doing things like philosophy and self-help or whatever to improve your mindset and your view on life. But relationships, I think that it's even been said by some that like relationships are the biggest predictor in longevity. Despite the title of this episode, Esther Perel is not actually with us here as a guest, but we are going to talk about her work. And we're 99% sure that you pronounce it Perel. You can put that in a blooper reel if you want, but I'm telling you, it's Esther Perel. <laughs> yeah, I think I was pronouncing it wrong. She is from Belgium. Both of her parents were Holocaust survivors. She's the author of a book called Mating in Captivity, Unlocking Erotic Intelligence. That sounds like a really good book. She's also the author of The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity which is about how to create a strong marriage after infidelity. She has two TED Talks. Both are on long-term relationships. She also has a podcast. She has two podcasts. One is called Where Should We Begin, which is super cool because what she does in this podcast is she's actually recording live therapy sessions, which just sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to listen to that. Then she has another podcast called How's Work, which is the same idea, recording these live therapy sessions, but they're people talking about their relationships at work. And she's on Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100 list. And super cool, she has built this whole career of hers based on a master's in expressive arts therapy. Isn't that cool? Very cool. She's one of those people. Some people, even if they're on a podcast, you can get life-changing information from them in one hour. One of the things that she talks about is relational intelligence. So not only do we need to be emotionally intelligent, creatively intelligent, we also need to have relational intelligence. And what that is, is the ability to be aware of your own and others' emotions and needs and use that information to guide your actions. I think it probably really helps to be curious and be mindful because the idea of being aware of someone else's emotions, someone else's values, someone else's interests and needs, you need to be need to be really curious. I think maybe Jacob, you're one of the only people I know who's really good at this. 
I think therapy was a big help for me. Definitely. And then the fact that my wife is incredible. We have a very strong relationship from the beginning. But yeah, therapy was a big help on top of just getting very lucky. (laughs) Having a great wife. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good combo. There are a couple approaches to mindfulness. One is, is that you have a sitting practice. You sit, you pay attention to your breath, you pay attention to the sounds in the environment, you pay attention to your thoughts, your emotions, and you generally become more mindful. So that's one approach to mindfulness. Another approach is you can target and devote time and attention to becoming more mindful of certain aspects of your experience. This is what I do in coaching. I'm not teaching them a sitting practice, but we're talking about different aspects of their life and how they can become more mindful throughout the day, not necessarily during a sitting practice. What Esther Perel talks about is that second approach, which is to become mindful of certain aspects of your life. She's not up there teaching people how to have a mindfulness sitting practice, but she definitely is helping people be more mindful of certain elements of their relationship. Esther Perel says that it helps to be mindful of your boundaries, your use of assumptions, and your tendencies for wanting more closeness or wanting more distance in a relationship. So I'll repeat that. It helps to be mindful of your boundaries, your use of assumptions, and your tendency for wanting more closeness or wanting more distance in a relationship. And I really like the way uh, Esther Perel works. She poses a lot of questions. This is what I do in coaching is I pose a lot of questions that help people open up and become more aware of the different aspects of their inner being and their experience. So here are some questions that she poses to help us be more mindful of our tendencies to want more closeness or more distance in a relationship. Here are some things to consider. Do you value security and connection more or do you value independence and freedom more when you're in a relationship? Yeah, just out of curiosity, could you, I mean, in your experience, give a couple of examples of what she might mean by that? So if someone values more security and connection, they might want more communication throughout the day, at night, more time to talk. They might want more collaboration. They might want to do things and figure things out together instead of a more parallel relationship where the two people are figuring things out on their own. Somebody who wants more space might literally need more physical space. They might need to be out of the house more. They might need more mental and emotional space. They might want to spend more time alone when they are at home. And they might want to figure a lot of things out in their life on their own without the help or collaboration of their partner. That's great. And there's pros and cons to both, right? Because if you're constantly having to depend on your partner to move through everything that can come with its stresses. But if you are completely living these separate lives, that that can be an issue too. So another question she asks is, were relationships central when you were a child or were they a low priority? Did your parents have a lot of close friends? Were they close with other family members? That dynamic as a child is part of what shapes your dynamic. Well, I've never thought of that. So just observing your parents' relationship with their family can tell you a lot about how you actually prioritize relationships or not. That's very interesting. I've never heard of that. My family always lived in uh, close proximity to each other. So we didn't do a lot of phone time. We did a lot of in FaceTime. 
It's like you see your family every Sunday at church and then a birthday party during the week or an event. So we saw each other all the time. We never had to wonder about what the other people were doing. And since living out of state, that's been difficult for me to transition to doing more phone time. I always give myself a pretty hard time for not being better at doing phone time. I've had to learn how to to do more of, to, to stay in contact with everybody on a regular basis. Yeah. So when you were growing up, it wasn't like your parents were on the phone all the time with aunts and uncles and they weren't passing the phone to you and saying, hey, talk to your aunt so-and-so. No, You're no. learning how to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And versus my wife, she's very used to that. She's always had family living out of state. So that's mm-hmm. very normal. I've never thought about it like that. That's so fascinating. I'm going to be a little more polite to myself then about mm-hmm. not being so good at that. Another question that she poses is, did you grow up with too much attention and intrusion or too much neglect and abandonment? Wow. Yeah. So that can really determine some of the ways you act in a relationship. I grew up, I was the first of my parents' children and I was the first grandchild and my mom had four siblings and uh, my dad was an only child. So I was the first baby and then everybody was around each other. So I got so much attention versus my wife was a a third child. Mm -hmm. So she had a very different experience with attention. Whenever we need space from each other, it's always her needing space for me. And because I'm just so used to having people around and attention all the time, and, and I'm very extroverted. That's so funny. I've never thought about that either. It can also work the opposite because some people can feel like they got neglected as a child and they will yearn for more relationship mm-hmm. later in life because of not getting it when they were younger. Oh, interesting. Another question here. Are you a person who likes to be left to do it yourself? Or are you someone who wonders why you are left to do it yourself? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Are you that kind of person? You know, if it's your chore to clean the house, you do it the way you want to do it. You don't want help. You just want to just get it done. Whereas someone else might want to get their partner's opinion and help on how to clean the house. And maybe they don't even like this, like dividing the chores. Like maybe they'd rather clean the house together. That comes up for me in cooking. I just like to be left alone when I'm cooking. I mean, you can be there just kind of sitting there and talking to me, but I do not like to collaborate in the kitchen. I like to divide and conquer things with people. So if we establish you're doing this and then I'm doing this, then that's fine. The thing that really bugs me even with work and anything is consistently reaching out to people and having to check in with them. So I guess I am very independent in that way. Yeah, I've always done well with bosses who like once a week, here, this is what we need to get done. And then I just do it on my own. The last question here, how do you ask for help? A very simple question, but that can lead to a lot of awareness about how you are in a relationship. It's Asking for help is something that's really hard for me to do. Yeah, this is definitely an area of growth for me in relationships. I don't feel like I'm very bad at asking for help in the relationship. Uh, if anything, I may ask for too much help in the relationship. I'm going to spend some time with that this week and think about that. Looking back at these questions, especially these ones about independence versus connection and reliance, I was raised to be independent. I mean, that was a huge value in my family. I think it still is. And I think I've helped my kids have that value too. But at the same time, I grew up with a lot of neglect. 
So then there's also this part of me that has abandonment issues and it's always yearning for more connection. So it's like this complete inner conflict. There's half of me that's like wants to be totally independent. And then the other half of me that's having this yearning, that's kind of a mess in my head sometimes. Yeah, sure. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. Have an awareness of what your preconditioning is in situations seems like that's the real key here. But then these questions are so good at probing and making you examine from a slightly different perspective. Like, I love a good question. Oh man, it can really shape your thought process totally differently. These questions move us from this perspective that this is my reality and I'm this should be everybody else's reality, moving from that to oh, this just happens to be my reality because this is the way I grew up and opening up to someone else might be coming from a completely different place. Here are some other things that we can think about to help us be more mindful in regarding any assumptions that we're making. Here's one. Do I respond to my partner in a way that I would like to be responded to? Or have I investigated how my partner would like to be responded to and do that. That to me is some like next level shit. Like I don't think there's that many people that really go out of their way to investigate how would my partner like me to respond in in these situations where I know you do this, Jacob, because I've heard you. My wife, I've told her the best way to get me to do something is to not say, hey, can you do this? It's to say, do you need me to help you do this? And that flips the switch in my brain as to like, no, you know what I mean? It's like saying, oh, so you are not capable of handling this on your own. So I'm going to step in and help you. And then I'm like, then it flips the shame switch to where I'm like, it's like a red light alert. I got to do this right now. That Mm -hmm. puts me into a shame cycle. This is a teachable moment. Are you ready? You ready to learn something new? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. There is a difference between shame and guilt. Ah, okay. Shame is never okay. I think we've actually talked about this now that you say this. Shame is always associated with devaluing yourself. Got it. You're not good enough. But guilt is when you go against certain values. So you just feel bad because you went against the value. But if you experience guilt in the right way, you feel guilty. But at the same time, you know you're human and you make mistakes and you're not devaluing yourself in any way. Yes, okay. Yeah, That is exactly what I meant. Exactly what I meant. Not shame then. Yeah, that was a misuse of the word. Yeah, I misspoke. Yeah. No, guilt is exactly what I mean because it is not the same as shame. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So I feel guilty. I want to make sure my wife is happy and she feels like she lives in a great place and she's comfortable in the environment. I think what you're saying is is great and is totally practical because I can see other couples, like maybe someone in the relationship is supposed to clean the garage, right? And then the other person in the relationship is like, like, when the hell is he going to clean the garage? That person who's really wanting to make sure that gets done in the garage can say, hey, do you need some help with the garage? Yes. That's just such a nice way to nudge. I read the book Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck. It talked about a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Mm-hmm. Reading every, study after study and seeing how people have fixed mindset in certain ways. So I learned that I had a fixed mindset. So one of the things was like, okay, how do I best solve this issue? Growth mindset is so important. A few episodes ago, we were talking about psychedelics and you talked about the snow-covered hill and that these tracks that the sleds make, and those are all the tracks that are in our neural pathways, and that we can just kind of soften those tracks and, and not get in those ruts. That has just given me so much to think about. And the other day, I wasn't having a very good day and there was just these certain thought patterns that were going on that I know are 
because I've had past trauma, I've just done enough research to understand that our brains start thinking in these certain ways when we've had past trauma. And I just stopped and I said, trauma brain, trauma brain, to kind of wake myself up. Okay. My trauma brain is using these certain neural pathways. And I intentionally was like, I'm going to think a different thought that is not using any of these pathways that I'm in right now. And the thought that I decided to think was the rest of my day is going to be great. <laughs> and it just like, it just, I felt like, okay, I'm using a whole new track. Yeah, and I shifted. Yeah. 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 It was such a good feeling. Another something that we can become mindful of in relation to our assumption is, and this is a function of the brain. This is a cognitive bias. We often think our experience is based on circumstances. So if we're in a bad mood, it's because of our circumstances. While we often will think that someone else's or our partner's experience is based on character. I definitely do this. We often think that our emotions, our difficulties are due to our circumstances. But if someone else is going through something and they're having a certain type of negative response, it's just because of their character. My wife crushing it in college, being on the dean's list and being very happy and to like getting a job that was challenging and watching her be bummed out some days, I would worry that she was a bummed out person. Mm -hmm. And then I snapped out of it and realized like, oh no, she's in a circumstance she just graduated college. She came off of this high. And then now she has a job that she's not super stoked on. The whole idea of cognitive biases, our brain can only process so much information. And so that's why we, we have assumptions. That's why we take these shortcuts so we don't have to process so much information. Another cognitive bias that Esther Perel talks about is we look for what we expect to see. And so we gather information that can our assumptions. So if we're struggling in a relationship and we have these preconceived notions about what's going on and about the other person's character, then we might just let into our psyche information that confirms what we already believe instead of being more open to other things that are going on with that person. So again, it's a function of the brain and we have to use mindfulness to overcome that. In our episode, Why the Human Race is Prone to Making Bad Decisions, that's episode 22, we go through several cognitive biases and talk about why that is a function of the brain. And lastly, here are some questions that we can ask to become more mindful of the quality of our boundaries. Do you take responsibility for things that you should not take responsibility for? Are you indifferent towards your own actions, not taking responsibility? Do you take on other people's emotions? Do you create a lot of space in between you and the other person so you're not close enough to them where you can really understand their emotions? When Esther Perel talks about boundaries, she doesn't talk about having boundaries or not having boundaries, which is the way I've always conceptualized it. We either have good boundaries or we don't. The way she talks about it is our boundaries have a certain permeability. So we either have boundaries that are very permeable, a lot that's gets through, or we have boundaries that are more rigid where not much gets through. How easy is it for someone else's opinion to make it through to you? How much does someone else's opinion affect you? Oh boy. Yeah. Some mm -hmm. days more than others for sure. Yeah. And again, you can look at your childhood. You can look at the boundaries of your family. And this is what Esther Perel invites us to do. The boundaries of your own family growing up, how permeable 
were those boundaries around your family? How easy was it for opinions and ideas in the outside world able to penetrate and get through to your family? And she also says there's a myth about boundaries. The myth is good boundaries cause disconnection. In a relationship, boundaries actually create better intimacy. The alternative here is two people who come together without any boundaries. They actually fuse. There's no boundaries, so they fuse together. And when you fuse together with someone, it's hard for you to separate your emotions from the other person's emotions. Are you someone who could loosen your boundaries or open them up, be a little bit more permeable? Or are you someone that could strengthen your boundaries and have them be a little bit more more rigid? Probably unsurprisingly, I tend to not have very many boundaries. and I've had to work a lot on like tightening mine up. One of the things that really opens up my boundaries is humor. So if I'm with someone who has a sense of humor, there can be a lot of fluidity between me and the other person. If I'm with someone who doesn't have a sense of humor, I'm just locked up. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Days that I'm a bit more serious, you seem to be a bit more serious. And the days that I'm more silly, you're a lot more silly. Yeah. That's interesting. My dad was a huge influence in my life and my dad has a huge sense of humor. So that's probably where it's from. It goes right to my nervous system and my nervous Mm. system just relaxes when somebody starts joking around. I do have a study published in the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy. And what they did here is couples participated in a two-hour mindfulness class for four weeks. So once a week for four weeks. What I like about this study is they combined that type of mindfulness where you're learning a sitting practice with that type of mindfulness where you're targeting a certain aspect of your life and becoming more mindful of it. So in the first week, they learned about mindfulness of themselves. In the second week, they learned about mindfulness of their partner, being more mindful of what their partner was going through. In the third week, they learned mindfulness of relationships, so being more mindful of those dynamics in the relationship. And then the fourth week, they talked about mindfulness of the family, being more mindful of these dynamics in a family. And they also were asked to have a 15-minute-a-day at-home practice. And the couples reported that after this training, They were connected more deeply to their partners. They reported that they were able to work better together. They reported that they were able to see their partner's point of view more easily. I think that's huge. Absolutely. I work with couples and that's definitely a a huge benefit. And they reported after this four-week mindfulness training that they communicated more easily with their partner and they were more aware and accepting of their partner. So that's, that's some really good improvements after just taking a four-week training, I think. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode, if this was helpful for you understanding how you can improve your own romantic relationships, please share this episode with maybe your partner or someone else that you know that wants to work on their relationship a little bit, wants to bring mindfulness into their relationship. Please share this episode with them. Thank you so much. The Aware Mind Podcast is a TSD Mindfulness production. Please visit our website at tsdmind.org. That is T as in tame, S as in soothe, and D as in dwell. Mind as in mindfulness.org. Check out our blog post for this episode with links to supplemental information such as worksheets you can use to put into practice the mindfulness skills shared in this episode. Also, please sign up for our newsletter and receive mindfulness tips. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at aware underscore mind underscore podcast. Thank you.